Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Certainly, this day-to-day reality of ours could not seem more unreal to me. True, none of the traditional ideas about life after death strike me as very believable, or even all that desirable. That said, I do find the idea of an afterlife quite compelling. Some years ago, my wife Tanya and I were having lunch in a big, empty Italian restaurant in the suburbs. From where I was sitting, I could see out the window into the parking lot. Way at the back was a forlorn corner surrounded by a few skimpy trees. Something in this lonely and very mundane location struck a nerve in me. I immediately felt like I would like to stand there and let time wash over me. It was just a spot for a ghost, and I thought, I'd like to be that ghost. Of course, a moment later, I woke to the truth. How long would I actually enjoy standing there doing nothing? Certainly not for eternity. Let's face it, in no time, I'd be bored stiff. And of course, the bigger problem, the whole thing sounds crushingly lonely. There is the rub of eternal life. Terribly boring, and even worse, terribly lonely. Okay, I suppose the answer then is you need some company in the afterlife. That never quite works for me either. First off, can you really imagine the afterlife as merely an extension of this worldly life? An afterlife spent hanging around, doing nothing with your friends or family for eternity. Let me say that again. Hanging around with your family for eternity. Also, I've never been able to realistically envision any kind of afterlife where I am not entirely alone. This probably has to do with the fact that I was essentially an only child, and I believe the circumstances of your childhood pretty well determine what kind of writer you end up as. I look around at other writers, say writers who grew up in big extended families, and I see their stories are brimming with characters. I grew up in a very insular family, just me and my two much older parents, parents who never had a friend and never invited anyone to the house. Consequently, I'm only really comfortable writing about one or two characters at a time. It's what I know. I've never written much of anything with a repertory cast. I think this lack of imagination has directed my idea of the afterlife as well. I just can't invest in a scenario with more than one ghost. So in the end, the real solution to afterlife loneliness is that the loneliness must be removed from the equation. In the afterlife, the ghost must be perfectly content, freed from lonely suffering, and more important, freed from regret. That's essential because the other element of the afterlife that strikes me as paramount is, of course, reviewing your life. To me, it's the only real point of an afterlife, trying to figure out what this mess was all about. Now for this, you would need perfect memory, and you would also need calm, clear-headed, deep reason to look back and understand. And to restate once more, an eternity going over the details of this lifetime would be an utter nightmare 
without the removal of regret. Without that, it's all regret. Think about it. You are trying to understand what everything meant in your life, what you did, what you didn't do, who the other people in your life really were, what others thought of you, what your words and deeds really meant, and what they led to, what the big picture was. But don't get me wrong. By excising loneliness and regret, I am not advocating that the, that the ideal afterlife is without emotion. I'm not imagining some sort of cold, unfeeling robot ghosts. You need emotion for this task. Mostly you need all the good emotions, love and empathy especially. Yes, you need some hard reason and self-judgment too, but emotion makes the difference. You want to feel the events. Perhaps, and here's some wish wishful thinking, you might go back over your life and get to re-experience the events themselves. Rewind to the moments one wishes to feel again. Fast forward past the horrible stuff. Perhaps you could assemble a kind of highlights reel of all the best moments. Experience them again and again. And with the gift of perfect memory, nothing of, it, of the experience would be lost or shadowy in the way it is with real memory. With this, I recognize I'm starting to create some perfect dream scenario. This is beginning to sound like one long second childhood. No responsibility, no pain, nothing but candy. And clearly, this isn't everybody's cup of tea either. Not everyone would like to spend the rest of time picking through the ephemera of their own past. Not a very dynamic vision of eternity. Something more of an old grannyish afterlife, sitting comfortably in a soft chair with a nice cup of tea and contentedly flipping through an infinite number of family scrapbooks. Spelling it out like this does kind of embarrass me. But even so, I admit, I am very attracted to this kind of empty, calm world of pure self-reflection and pure self-indulgence. There is a reason why I was a very poor Buddhist when I was younger. I simply could not embrace a universe that was set on obliterating my sense of self. Anybody else's, sure, but not me. I'll go further. When I playfully entertain this afterlife scenario, I start imagining that I will be reading all my favorite books again or watching the movies I've ever, all the movies I've ever seen over and over again, spending time with everything I've owned, getting back my childhood toys, a nostalgic dreamland. Increasingly, the whole idea gets stupider and stupider. Could there be an afterlife dimension where you lug all your junk along with you? Over the years, I've found myself drawn to the image of a dimly lit room. A living room, usually, mid-60s furniture, always a TV set. Undoubtedly, the living rooms of my childhood. I've made several prints of these rooms, a series of cutout pictures, some ceramic works, some cardboard models. I'm even working on a full-size bronze sculpture at the moment. Pondering this image, I initially saw it as merely a scene of tranquility. Later, it dawned on me this was surely a psychological image, not so much a place as an inner state an inner room, inside the mind or the body, or maybe even the soul. Over time, it merged with my other generalized notions of the afterlife and has taken on some kind of totemic power, encapsulating all these notions into one. I'm not sure where the image originated. It might have come from the books of Anita Bruckner. I started drawing these rooms about the same time as I was plodding my way through her 24 depressing novels. 
In almost every one of her slow-moving tales of loneliness, the main character resides in a dark, unvisited apartment in which nothing ever changes. Bruckner herself was a lonely woman who never married and never seems to have had any deep personal relationships or friendships. In her obituary in the Times of London, she was referred to as the Mistress of Gloom. It goes without saying that she is my favorite author of all time. <laughs> looking, back after this, uh, looking back, this iconic image of a dim room, after it had taken form in my mind and in my work, I didn't see it so much as a new image, but instead more as a solidification of something I'd been working towards for years, but didn't quite realize. Now when I look back, I see it in there, in protoform, everywhere in my earlier work. You'll come across it in Clyde Fans. It's on practically every page. Clyde Fans, a depressing book about lonely figures, dimly lit rooms, and a vision of the afterlife in which one spends eternity contentedly hiding under a rock. I hope this encourages you to purchase a copy. <laughs> and now, we're going to watch a cartoon. In an obscure Ontario town, just a little place really, you know the kind of place, four corners, a few stores, a handful of houses grouped around a railway depot. Along one of its back streets, a typical post-war apartment building, number 15 to be exact, behind a nondescript door, a thick darkness, and an overwhelming odor of oil and electricity.
one suddenly finds oneself standing outside in the rear parking lot. And behind you, a stark doorway and a little sign. Open daily, 10 to 4 p.m. Come again. folks. Uh, how's everybody doing? Good to see you. Thanks for coming out. Uh, can you tell me, um, raise your hand if you've been into CES work for more than two or three years, let's say. Okay. Yeah, everybody, everybody but my 12-year-old <laughs> son who uh, couldn't read uh, three years ago uh, puts their hands up. Okay, great. I was afraid uh, that was going to be humiliating. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> no, now, now he knows. Uh, now he, he's read all of your Peanuts books uh, attentively. Um, all right, well, uh, I, I want to talk about the sort of big picture of, of Seth's work and career uh, over the next few minutes, but let, let's start with the, the, the new, I mean, this is both a new project and an old project. You've been producing Clyde Fan's uh, books since, I think, 97, 98, something like 97, that. 97, I think, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, and th there's a new beautiful edition, which, which hopefully some of you have, have seen, uh, which we're here to talk about tonight. Um, so... Um, the, um, you don't really, you're not really that interested in the present, are you? Uh, you, you know, the, the, the this, That's uh, a complicated question. this, uh, yeah, the <laughs> Clyde fan starts in 97, if you, if you pick up yeah. the book, but it goes back to the 50s. It's really a product of sort of a mid-century vision, a mid-century kind of, of, of salesman sure. capitalism, uh, and it, it takes place, I know it's your backyard, but it takes place a long way away from where many of your readers, you have an international yeah. uh, uh, following. So I just wonder, you're, you're, what sends you, uh, and this is true of much of your work, what yeah. sends you back into the past so often? Yeah, well, it's funny. I mean, when I was 25 or whatever, if you asked me about why I was interested in the past, I would have had a clear, simple answer. <laughs> it would have been like I, would, I had a bunch of ideas why I was a young fogey. Mm -hmm. But um, now that I'm actually an old fogey, um, I don't really know anymore. It's like, except for the most obvious reason is that um, my parents were old. And mm -hmm. when I grew up with them in a very, like I said, a very like sort of um, isolated kind of life together, just the three of us, I feel like I absorbed a tremendous amount of their life history in that, in the, you know, back in the mid-century. And certainly when I was 20 years old, I was like the only time in my life when I was actually in touch with the culture. I wouldn't have you know, recognize that. A few years later, like by the time I was 30, I started to understand that, like, that it had a profound effect on me. I thought a lot about that period, and I was attracted to all the imagery from that time. And increasingly, as I've gotten older, I find that, like, I just have a gut-level reaction towards mid-century, the aesthetics of the mid-century. I would make no argument that it was a better time. Right. Um, maybe when I was 23, you might have got me in a good argument about that. I had a lot of like nonsensical ideas about things, <laughs> but now it's like it's very obvious. There are you know, nothing is ever simple like that. Right. But I would say I have not only a gut level reaction for like appreciate the aesthetics of that time. I have a gut level reaction that turns me off from the current era as mm -hmm. well. That is kind of just um, I wouldn't say it's based on defensible arguments. It's just you know there's. Um, I guess this happens to a lot of people as you get older. 
you feel less in touch with what's going on and you start getting grumpy about it. Mm -hmm. yeah. but, e but even when you started this project, which was more than 20 years ago, th these were things that this world of the door-to-door -door salesman and the, the fan shop and so on yeah. were, th were things that were took place at least a decade before you were born. The, the, fir yeah. the first book of yours, at least, that I'm, that I'm aware of, uh, It's a Good Life If You Don't Weaken, I think the title, I don't know, comes from a Farron Young, Young song, right? And there's a, uh, or maybe it's an yeah. old Canadian it's expression. A, no, it's an old, it's actually an old British saying. It's oh, okay. From the 30s. Okay, My mother used go. to say it all the time. So, it's, actually, so it's even earlier than, yeah. uh, than, than American country It was actually, music. it's a yeah. great life if you don't weaken, it's a saying. But I just mm -hmm. couldn't quite embrace the great. <laughs> you couldn't so, go all the way there, life. yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. You know, so, so, so again, you know, that one, I don't remember exactly when it's set, but it feels like it's a sort of mythical well, that was the start 19th of century yeah. or something. Yeah, I mean, I'm like looking back at an old cartoonist in that, and I'm like, right. you know, I'm very much, um, that book, you know, like when you see me walking around, there's like no modern buildings in that book, even though right. it's taking place in what have been contemporary at the time, because I just couldn't bring myself to draw the contemporary world. But, um, but then, after that, I started to set things in yeah. environments where I didn't have to draw anything I didn't like. Right. When I have to draw a car in a modern story, I get quite confused. It's like I've not drawn a modern car before, and when I get a you know, Google image or whatever, I'm like, it doesn't feel right to draw. I, a right. car to me is that funny boxy shape from the 70s. Right, right, right. So it's like in some ways... I feel like my like people will be like, oh, your work is very old-timey. And I feel like I'm not trying to make it old-timey anymore. I've just invested too much time when mm -hmm, I was young mm -hmm. in developing this kind of old-fashioned style. And now I feel like to some degree it's, it's happening without my control. And, the, and I'm going to move on from the past in a second. But my memory, I, I haven't could be confusing this somebody, but I think that first book of yours is the first reference I know in comics, at least, to, the, to a phrase that became quite uh, uh, dominant for a while, the phrase, uh, a ghost world, right? Isn't yeah. there a reference to that, which Dan yeah. Klaus, uh, Dan didn't. Dan didn't take it from me, but uh -huh. I, I'm very grateful that you recognize I came up with it first. Right, right, right. So remind the, the crowd what I'm talking about, because I remember Well, I think vaguely. primarily I just used the phrase somewhere in the book to refer to the idea of the, the, the lingering image of the past, the way that you walk around and see like sort of the remnants of it still in our world. Like the, the past doesn't entirely vanish ever. It's always you walk down any street. I mean, just taking a cab through L.A., mm -hmm. you see like much of a ghost world here of like an old world that's, that exists sort of like to the side of, of like the more modern period. And mm -hmm. that, that, ex that juxtaposition of old and new is actually extremely interesting and adds the poignancy to mm -hmm. like the whole idea of the past disappearing. Mm -hmm. it was, mm -hmm. There really isn't, it wouldn't be very poignant if uh, every old thing you saw was perfectly preserved. It's like there's something about that, like when you go to like, like a historical site where they're like, this is the, you know, the, uh, the home of George Washington or whatever. You, it's like this does not in any way make me feel like the sort of the, the sadness of the lost past. That's, mm -hmm. You only feel that when you see the sort of ghost images of things, mm -hmm. the, ba the barn that's falling down, mm -hmm. the old storefront that's closed up. Mm -hmm. um, the... Um the, the book we're, we're here to talk about today, Clyde Fans, is about a number of things. It's about the past, it's about Canada, it's about uh, you know, a huge range of things, but it seems to me a lot of it is about a certain kind of older capitalism 
where it was, it wasn't pre-industrial, but it was in some ways pre-corporate, or at least it was a capitalism that was local, it was hand-to-hand yeah. hand hand and face-to-face. And -face. Tell us a little about that world that the, the characters in this, uh, in this book are, are dedicated to and, and the, the threats, the challenges yeah. to them as, as time starts to change. Well, primarily, you know, all the structure around the characters is, um, is window dressing. I mean, like the characters themselves, Abe and Simon are the, the essentials of what I was interested in. But that world of sales is like, a, it's a wonderful, you know, it's a wonderful metaphor, whatever you want to say, wonderful like structure to build around them because that culture of sales is entirely interesting. When I first started Clyde Fans, I went out and purposely bought, you know, 10 or 15 books on how to sell from the 50s and early 60s and read them and they were, you know, most of them were pretty boring, but um, <laughs> but a couple of them were utterly fascinating. There was one, I believe, it was called something like the best for the the forty best sales we ever made, or something. And it was like individual stories from salesmen talking about the best sale they ever made, and these were great. You know, they were probably all bullshit, but um, every story was like one of these kind of tales of pers persistence and struggle and how they turned the tide. And uh, they were very Horatio Alger, very American in tone. Um, and this, you know, that was like a great source of information for me on how to build how salesmen talk and what they talk about. Um, but essentially, a lot of that talk about sales, of course, is really talking about the failure of the two characters and themselves to like, to actually make it in the world. Um, that the whole world, they, I mean, all the, all the window dressing around there is really about memory, primarily. Memory is what I think when it comes down to it is I think when I was younger I was confused that I thought I was interested in the past when I was interested in memory mm. and how memory operates and how like how um, how we shape our lives through memory I think is increasingly interesting to me as I get older. Right, and we, we reweave those memories as oh, time yeah. goes on, right? I mean, the past Absolutely. changes as we tell ourselves new stories about yeah, it and leave yeah. things out yeah. and add other elements to it as well. Yeah, you change what those things mean. I yeah. mean, if you, asked, if you were asked at the age of 25 like to talk about your memories and what they meant, and then you were asked at the age of 45, right. you would have probably a different interpretation of what that stuff meant. And you've reshaped right. it, actually, like put it into a new form, which right. I find is interesting. Well, this is what Proust is about, and a lot of literature, too, so I, I feel like you're kind of congruent with that, that lineage. Um, is, is there an element here in, this, in these books about a, kind of a beleaguered or fading middle class? No, it's not really that political or, or you know, like that socially concerned, to be perfectly honest. I mean, It's just about these I, two yeah, guys. When I write, I mean, it's really like there's a certain kind of what I would call um, like let's not worry about it school of writing. <laughs> it's like I just let the writing write itself. Um, I do think like there's a kind of magic in how the brain works when you write. It's um, you'll write something and you publish it and then later somebody says to you like that was really great how you had this thing here and it connected with this thing over here and I thought that was brilliant and you think like that is pretty smart but I never even thought of that. <laughs> it's like it didn't, I never even entered into my brain and you think like well how is that possible? That was an extremely great connection and it's like it's perfect. It's like it couldn't have just got in there by accident. And then, of course, you realize, well, of course, you wrote it. It came out of your brain. Everything's in your brain. There's connections going on in your own brain that you're not even aware of. And they come out. And I do think there's a kind of a magic in letting it out into the, onto the page and not knowing what it means right. and letting it figure itself out. Right, right, and when right. you work on something for 20 years, yeah. it's <laughs> like it's doing its own thing. Right, you hope yeah. so. Yeah. 
you know, when I when I first um, saw your work, which is again almost almost twenty years ago, I, I I was immediately drawn to the even beyond the storytelling. I was drawn to it visually, uh, and I could pick up some of the references and some of them I couldn't. I mean, I could had a feeling you were drawing from a mid-century tradition of design. I could feel the, the old New Yorker covers and sure. so on, yeah, yeah. New Yorker cartoons. But there were some elements that I could, I, I kind of were, was halfway, but couldn't quite put my finger on it. And then when I was in Toronto a few years ago, I went to the uh, the AGO, I guess. Or the yeah, Ontario Gallery of Art. Yeah, Lawrence. Ontario yeah. Gallery of Art, right. Yeah. Uh, and there happened to be an exhibit of of the Canadian landscape painters, I guess called the Group of Seven, right? Yeah, uh, Lawton, yeah. Uh, no, I don't the, think there's a lot. No. Huh. <laughs> there's um, Lawson. Lawson. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. one letter. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, can, I won't are hard go through them all. Nobody but, wants but, to hear yeah, all that. Yeah, in any case. But, but Canadian landscape <laughs> yeah, painters yeah. of the the early and middle 20th century, I think, who, who yeah. tended to use a limited palette, and there was a an almost uh, brooding kind of serenity to a lot of their, yeah. their work. And I realized, ah, here's the other side of Seth that I hadn't quite put my finger on. Oh, yeah, are, are those people yeah. and other painters landscape or, or, or otherwise an influence on your the way you see well they are for sure I mean the, the group of seven is like if you, the quintessential Canadian artists if you were Canadian you'd, you'd be like I don't want to hear anything about the group of seven mm -hmm. because they have been they're the, the foundation of Canadian art and I would say that like through the 40s 50s and 60s and even 70s they were literally like the kind of thing you'd see on every school school wall every mm -hmm. embassy every you know they were so official art of Canada. Right, so but, even if you wanted is, yeah. to ignore their yeah. influence, you wouldn't yeah. have been able to. And in fact, right now, I'd say that there's a whole process going on of trying to um, undercut them or get rid of them. Mm -hmm. It's like kind of because they represent a certain idea in Canadian art, which is I'm very um, sympathetic with, but you, I can see how at this point in time, you've got seven, um, seven white, white guys, men yeah. who lived in Toronto who went like a hundred miles into the bush and then created a myth of the Canadian landscape where they were really like, you know, a bus ride away from home. <laughs> and um, and they sort of, to some degree, like kind of took a great deal of, of native right. um, kind of like imagery and stuff into their work. And, and, and in Canada, you know, like the idea of certainly in the 50s and 60s, like the native people would have been considered like Canadian imagery. Mm -hmm. Except mm -hmm. they were a totally separate people that were not, you know, they were just used for that purpose. They had their own lives yeah. outside the image. Yeah, exactly. They yeah. weren't. Their own culture, yeah. their own sense of art, and their yeah. own relationship to the landscape. Yeah. But putting all that aside, and I can understand why this, this process is going on right now, and it makes perfect sense. The reality of the group of seven is, is that these were a group of seven guys who s saw a painting in, like, um, northern Scandinavia. And they right. recognized there that yeah. there was a northern school of like yes. the landscape and they wanted to recreate that for Canada and there's like of the group there's maybe three of them that I think are fantastic right. that really like to me were in, in enormous influences especially Lauren Harris who did these amazing like phallic icebergs that are right. like so you know like they're sort of like Rockwell Kent might be a name that right. would right. be recognized here um, and there was you know there was another one a guy named Tom Thompson whose right. work is like the, the foundation, he literally... Right. I think Steve Martin is a big fan. Of, Steve Martin's a yeah, fan of yeah, one of these, yeah. one or all of these guys, yeah. and curated yeah. a show Tom Thompson wasn't, Hammer, wasn't quite as funny as, as Steve uh, Martin. Right, right, probably, <laughs> probably so, yeah. 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 Well, you know, so we've been seeing images of your work behind us, and, and I think a lot of yeah. people here are familiar with Clyde fans. You could probably do almost everything you did uh, over 25, 35 years as a cartoonist with shades of blue and gray, 
right? So, yeah, so give much. us a sense. We've talked about some of the visual influences, but why so limited a palette, and what are the what are the other elements that go yeah. into making the visual experience of, of Seth? Yeah, well, let's talk. Talking about the color is a very prosaic answer. When I started working in comics back in the mid '80s, um, you couldn't have any color. It's mm -hmm. like you were working in alternative comic books, and they didn't have any money to print color. So. Mm -hmm. Um, my work was pretty stark in mm -hmm. black and white, just lines. And so I asked uh, my publisher, Chris Oliveros, if I could have some gray tones. And he was like, yes, you can have some gray tones. So I got some gray tones. And then later, Chris had a little more money. And he said, you can have a color. <laughs> so I said, I'll take blue. And you know, I just got used to working in that two-tone mm -hmm. approach. Eventually, I was using gray and blue, which meant you could have a third color when right. they mixed together. How about white, right? Yeah, and you, get, and you got white and black, too. Right, but, right, right. Um, but that simple, like, the fact that, you know, it was determined by, you know, the, the, the money. That, economic yeah, austerity, exactly. limit, technological yeah. limitations. Yeah. And that's not right. true anymore. I mean, right. you can, like, young cartoonists working at, like, Drawn and Quarterly, for example, could probably have it. They can have all the color they want. The mm -hmm. printing costs have come down dramatically. But I got used to working that way, and it's a very old-fashioned way. I still right. work with an overlay. Right. I still do right. the drawing, and then I put a piece of paper over it, and then I draw in where the color will go, mm -hmm. and then this somebody else scans it and you know puts the files together. But that process eventually gets into your brain. That's how you think. So I think in those terms of using those old methods, and sometimes I do full color artwork. I mean, in my sketchbooks, I do full color artwork all mm -hmm. the time. But eventually, I've come to realize that stark, simple approach actually is like it's one of the strengths of the artwork. There's a kind of a, a, a a simplicity to it. Yeah, it certainly makes it distinctive. I mean, I wonder even if you had all the colors at your, you know, let's say you did a summer retreat and you could, you know, spend time getting to, to love yeah. yellow and orange and whatever sure. else. Sure, yeah. You know, there, uh, my hunch is that there's something um, that's emotionally res resonant that fits oh, yeah. the emotional, yeah. the way some musicians use acoustic guitars. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. something that, that makes the tone of your work distinctive in a way it wouldn't be if you yeah, had I call, a I actually call it wider range. I call it memory blue. Uh -huh, it's just because uh -huh, that's, right. you know, that's what it's about. Right. But, I mean, green's nice, too. Right, green, maybe, green is also memory-oriented. Right. Maybe there's yeah. something that, that, that about the colors and the simplicity the of the palette. Yellow would be trouble. Yellow yeah. I mean, I, it may yeah. be, and everybody's different probably, but I feel like it's perhaps the way we remember and the way we dream perhaps is in these more simple, I think it's all because of, of black and white photography. I think, uh, you know, like, uh -huh, I'm sure nobody uh -huh. in the, th nobody in the 16th century was talking about, like, that their dreams were in monochrome, even though they may have been. I've heard stories that we all dream in black and white, and I'm not sure if that's true. Mm -hmm. But I will say this. I think that, like, the past is permanently, like, in monochrome because of all that old footage. Mm -hmm. It's like if they'd had color in 1910, and it was, it, we wouldn't think that way, I don't think. Mm -hmm. There's something, something very powerful about the idea of the past as a, a monochrome image. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All those old black and white photographs sitting in a box. Right, right, right. Yeah, and, and old movies. I mean, for yeah. the first few decades of film, it was oh, all yeah. black and white. So you're, you're echoing older art forms by doing that. And, and I want to talk to you about that a little bit, too. I mean, obviously, you're a, you're a fan of other cartoonists and, and writers uh, of various kinds. But give us a sense of some of the other art forms, whether novelists, musicians, yeah. filmmakers, whatever, who you think excite you and may shape your work. Uh, you started out, as I recall, in the punk scene in the 80s, right? It's sort of Toronto punk scene. So that, that yeah. might have helped shape your worldview to tell it us did. It what did. went into it. Although I must say, I don't really, live, I haven't maintained like an interest in that culture anymore. So I don't like get up in the morning and put on like the Sex Pistols. Right, but, right. But which, you know, of course, you can imagine I wouldn't. But 
um, what was important about that period, and I think anybody who was involved in that scene at that time recognizes that that was a super important time as a youth culture for like in encouraging you to uh, like try to d define your own identity, to like have a kind of braveness about saying who I am and being willing to walk around in the street and take a lot of abuse because they were dressed <laughs> funny. But that was really like important though in that it was very much about like staking out your own ground and deciding who you were and feeling like that this um, asserting your individuality was important. And what was the phrase DIY going around then or the notion of doing yourself? I mean, I certainly yourself? heard the phrase, but yeah. I was not a particularly DIY guy unless right. it was, you know, put, putting studs on my jacket or something. <laughs> but, um, but certainly, you know, I was aware of like, you know, the punk zines that were going on at the time. And there was, mm -hmm. you know, it was a, the word D, those, that was in the air for sure. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, I never made a zine or mm -hmm. anything of that sort during that period. I you hooked up with a, with a publisher in your town and, and Yeah, I never did it. any yeah. drawing at all during my year as a punk. I was uh -huh. like, I, I had a drawing table, but I never sat at it. I would go over occasionally and think like, oh yeah, I should do some art. And then I would just <laughs> go out to a nightclub. Um, it was actually like that period was completely that, you know, that time where, like I talked to somebody like Chris Ware, who during those years was sitting at his desk working hard, and you can tell. Yeah. Um, he would, he'll say like, oh, I should really have gone out and lived maybe. And, and I'm, I'm like, I do not regret it. I had a lot of fun. Right, right, right. Yeah. You should do that when you're young. Uh, get it out of the way. Um, uh, what about other art forms? I mean, film or you well, of know, course. music? Or, and that was the other element you know, of that time period. Or, I came from, know. like, I was literally like a hick who rolled into Toronto with straw in my hair from a little town. Mm -hmm. And I came to the big city, went to art school, met all these, like, you know, much more sophisticated young people. And that was the opening of a whole world of, like, uh, literature, mm -hmm. film, art, I, you know, there were great repertory cinemas in Toronto in the mm. early 70s, and you could go out every night and watch last year at Marion Bad one night, mm. and then catch Casablanca the next night, and then mm -hmm. the night after that, Louis Malle, whatever. Mm -hmm. There was, uh, my friends I was involved in were all like very, they were readers. So, you know, it was the period when I first started to read seriously literature. You were talking about yeah. Margaret Atwood and Michael Andace and other yeah, yeah, Canadian I mean, writers. Yeah, I probably wasn't really reading a lot of canned lit at that point. I was trying to like get, you know, literature under my belt, trying to read like Kafka or whatever. Right, right. You know, wasting my time with William Burroughs or something. Right. You know, but... I uh, can see Kafka you know. being part of the mix here. Yeah, oh, yeah, actually. yeah. I mean, like yeah. all that, you know, I think that that's what's great about, like, you know, when you haven't had a university education and you're trying to, like, educate yourself is that the randomness of how you choose yeah. what to read, what to watch, what to listen to. Right. That leads to an interesting mix that later, like, you have your favorites, you know, but you discovered them in a kind of odd, interesting manner. I used to work in a, like a jewelry factory in those years, and I would like, and I was poor as a student, and I would like read one book at a time, so you'd like, you'd go out after you finished that book, and be like, okay, I finished, I finished the trial, and then you would go next door to the bookstore on your lunch hour, and you would spend the whole lunch hour looking at books, like, okay, what am I gonna read next? And then you'd like get your book, and it'd be a mistake. You could be like, I shouldn't have read this memoir of a guy who ran a snake farm, whatever. <laughs> you know, it's like you just, you take your chances. But in that random mix of culture, which is one of the exciting things of the pre-internet world, mm, was right. serendipity, right. Um, that forms your aesthetic. Right, right, right. I'm going to ask a few more questions and then open this up to questions from the uh, crowd here. Um, I I'm wondering, uh, how we've talked about it a little bit, but generally, how Canadian are you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I probably I am considered the most Canadian of the Canadian cartoonists, and that, <laughs> that my work has a lot of Canadiana in it. 
Um, and I did that very deliberately. I mean, there was a point where I think when I started out, I wanted to, like, this is a Canadian complaint, is people will say, like, we get very excited if we see a movie, and it's like, hey, that's Edmonton, because there's no <laughs> movies, like, where it's in Canada, and even if it's shot in Canada, they've just put, Pretend like, a here, subway, yeah. they've slid a subway entrance in that's from New York, so it's always posing as America. Right. So it's like the whole, a lot of Canadian um, culture, um, one of the things that is essential about it is, is it's set in our country and set in our locations and and a great deal of like the work of like yeah Margaret Atwood or Michael Andachi or these kind of writers is that it brought people like their own voices as they say so you'd be like wow this is a story set in a small town in Ontario that I know. Uh, Alice so, Monroe right yeah, would be another Alice Monroe, case. Exactly yeah. yeah so I um so when I started out, that was a big part of what I was doing, is I wanted to make sure it was set in the towns that I knew and that it was about those kind of things, or it was at least it was in a Canadian landscape. Later, I got more interested in the idea of like trying to develop my own idea of a Canadian image that I was putting forward. I spent a lot of time studying like Canadian vernacular design through the 20th century to like kind of figure out like what the essentials would be to make books or images that felt like they had some sort of my own take on what I would say like would be a Canadian design point. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, you know, I think I worked on this for about eight years studying stuff. Mm. I wrote a giant book that I've never published on it. Mm. But it all boiled down to three things. There were only three basic things that made it Canadian to me. And one was that there was a sense of space or landscape to it. Even in the most boring pamphlet on like how to drive your car, <laughs> there was this kind of use of space. The second oh. thing was there was a kind of officialdom to everything. Everything mm -hmm. had the stamp of Mother Corps on it. It had like the government stamp, it had a picture of the queen, it had something that made it feel like it was part of a bureaucracy. And so a country that never had a Reagan-Thatcher rebellion where we said there's no yeah. such thing as society, it's all yeah. about the individual, it's all about the market, the state is the enemy. That, that tradition never really hit no. Canada. No, Canada was always way. very much like a country, well, I mean, in the, when I grew up in the 70s, the sexiest thing you could be would be a civil servant. Right, um, right, right. And, um, and that was all because of, not to give a whole history in Canadian, like, but the fact is in 1967, we had our centennial. This was a defining moment in Canada because this was when Canada changed from boring Protestant Canada to exciting, we're in the 20th century Canada. And it was like uh, all these peppy songs about Canada and there was Expo with all these great modernist buildings and, and geodesic domes and, and go-go girls dancing and it was Canada, Canada, Canada. <laughs> and it was very exciting. And uh, Trudeau, the, the original Trudeau, right. came in, Pierre, and he was a very young, dynamic right. leader. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, he was changing Canada, changing all, like leading us into like a social kind of um, a state that was concerned right. about people. Safety net. Yeah, right. safety right. net, all right. this stuff. It was right. bringing Canada into the 21st century, really. That was a very exciting period that defined my upbringing. That has faded away mm -hmm. considerably in Canada. It's I not think, really I, like that I think I interrupted you. You said there were three things, and I stopped. Oh, yes. The third two, thing so was third. everything in the design was modest. Hmm. It was, did not have the American kind of self... Brashness. Yeah, it didn't right. put itself forward. There was right. something... It felt like we were ashamed. And, <laughs> and I think that, you know, and I, those three elements I have tried to craft into all my book designs. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, I can see it now. Um, all right, so this is a big question. I don't expect a full answer, but if you could give us a glimpse. I think people who don't do this, who don't draw uh, and don't know cartoonists, don't know just how painstaking and slow the process is. It takes for fucking ever to do a single page of this. I wonder how, with that understood, how the coming of the internet and digital technology has made cartoonists' life easier, and how has it made it more difficult? Don't yeah. feel the need to answer it all. Yeah, just no, it's tricky. Of it. I'm yeah. not sure I really know how it's made it, yeah. it, it yeah. for the digital world because I'm so poorly involved with it. Yeah, I tried to yeah. talk to you before this event. You don't even carry a cell phone, so no, you're still stuck in the, the I'm 19th deliberately, century. No, it's, yeah. a, it's a fact that I don't carry a cell phone because I made a really conscious choice not to have a device. And today, I was out in Santa Monica, and I, they'd had a cab arrived for me. No cab came. Suddenly, I'm standing <laughs> in the street, and it's like there's no way to call anyone. There aren't any cell phones. There aren't any pay phones right, anymore. Right, I had right. to go and accost an individual in the street and, <laughs> and beg them to call me a cab. Oh, my yeah. God. But oh. the point is I can recognize it's, there's a, a drawback to not having a digital device. But the other side is I'm trying hard to maintain some essence of the pre-digital world that I grew up in mm -hmm. because it's, it forms such an important part of how my creative process is. Even just having the computer in the house has changed my life. Mm. Um, even in, when it's on another floor. Mm -hmm. it's, it's funny, I used to feel a kind of wonderful silence to my life. I was in my studio, maybe I was listening to the radio. Now with that computer up there, two floors up, I can feel it up there. It's like buzzing away. It's like a, it, there's like a portal to all human voices in the house now. It's not even like the television. The television was just talking to you. Mm -hmm. Now you, like, you, 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 it's irresistible to see what people are saying. It's a strange change in human consciousness. Yeah, sure. Um, and you have access to all of the information and knowledge ever known anywhere. That they put on the internet, little, yeah. yeah. sure. <laughs> um, so last question. Uh, oh, but I, I didn't, I didn't yeah, answer your I'm question. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Which I was just going to say, the process of making the comics is laborious, but it depends a lot on what your point is once you're doing it. Like I do a variety of approaches, and some of the work isn't very laborious. I have some sketchbook kind of comics that I do that are actually kind of fine and loose. But when you, one of the problems of comic art is, is that it's a fetishistic art. Um, it's a handmade yeah. kind of artisanal most, yeah. thing. And most people who grew up and became cartoonists read comics that were done with a high degree of polish. And so they wanted to be able to do that. They looked at those drawings and they said, like, how did people ever draw it so perfectly with that brush or whatever? And then you struggle to learn how to do that and you realize at some point you don't want to do that anymore. And, but it's hard to get away from it because there's almost kind of like... The minute you start doing stuff easier, like with my little sketchbook comics, you start to feel like you're cheaping out. It's like you got to do the full approach, or it's like one of your friends will say he can't do it. Mm -hmm. and it's like there's almost like some sort of like fetishistic quality that you want it to be the best you can possibly do it. And when you do that, then it gets very boring and laborious. It takes a long time. When I ink a page, it only takes a few hours. But mm -hmm. then I spend eight hours whiting out the mistakes because mm -hmm. you want to get this kind of like perfection to everything. I hate that. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, uh, so, so the last thing I want to talk about, I, I was, this took me by surprise, though now it, it seems totally obvious, that I was interviewing a younger colleague of yours whose work I love, a guy named Adrian Tomina, who's, who's been at the store who does a comic called uh, Optic Nerve, and was talking to him about his influences. His work is not exactly like yours, but it has the same kind of sort of morose intellectual spirit, perhaps, and similar in some ways to uh, Dan Klaus as well. I asked him about his influences. Obviously, 
people like uh, R. Crumb are important to sure, yeah. everybody who came after. But he said, you know, for me, probably the most important cartoonist, and it wasn't just a childhood infatuation, it shapes everything I do now, was Charles Schultz and the Peanuts cartoons. Mm -hmm. You were lucky enough to be in charge of the design for the Peanuts uh, reissues, uh, mm -hmm. one of which you signed for my son a little while ago. Uh, what brought you to uh, what brought you to that project, and, and what has have the Peanuts books meant to you over the years? What did they mean yeah. to you before, and what how did you approach that project? Those are all still on shelves all over the yeah. world. It's a wonderful series. Oh, it was a great experience. I mean, I like most of the cartoonists of my generation. Schultz was a giant. Um, he was the first cartoonist I ever noticed. He was the first cartoonist whose name I ever noticed. And I looked in the corner of the strip and I said, who is this German guy drawing peanuts? <laughs> it's like it seemed perplexing. It seemed weird that there was somebody drawing it. Uh, I mean, this would probably be at like the age of seven or something or six. And those comics, you know, like it's interesting. I liked lots of old newspaper strips when I was a kid, but none of that stuff has had any lasting impact on me. Those were just strips in the newspaper. Schultz's work was deeper work. It was more profound. There was something um, genuinely like moving about that work when you were a kid and you read it and you didn't realize even that it wasn't written just for kids. Later when you got older and, and then you'd realize, oh wow, this is actually probably written for adults. What did he seem to capture? I mean, was my, my sense is that he captures a kind of childhood alienation or something that 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 better than anybody else ever did, at least anybody. Well, the him. characters were complex. I mean, you knew as a kid that like you were reading about people, mm -hmm. and um, it's funny. I mean, obviously he was making like jokes about psychology, and he was like, yeah. you know, it was kind of late fifties sick humor right in there. sort of but Freudian references yeah, and yeah. stuff and it was like yeah. it was, he was talking up to the audience you know using right. Beethoven or whatever but I right. don't think really that was the point of like why the work hit you it hit you because I think he was the first newspaper cartoonist that I ever saw where the work was about his him the work mm. was personal you could mm -hmm. see the work was personal it felt personal I wouldn't have said that when I was seven but Certainly when I was 20, and I started to like really reread Peanuts again, because mm. obviously in my teen years, I got lost reading Marvel comics. Mm -hmm. But when I was 20 and I started to approach Peanuts again, I realized, like, wow, this is the work that matters to me. And I started to understand like, that he really understood how to use the cartooning form. Mm. This is one of the hardest things to explain to people is that cartooning isn't just drawing pictures and writing words and that you put them, it's like, okay, so have the, he'll say this and then I'll draw them walking because it's that utterly interesting combination when you put them together and other things happen that may, maybe you don't even plan till you're drawing it. The drawing experience is when you do the writing hmm. and that is something you could see Schultz was doing every single day. Hmm. When he said he would just sit down and draw funny until something came up. You, that's how you knew, like, that's a cartoonist working. But sometimes, like, people will be like, um, I'm working on a graphic novel with this guy. He's like, I'm writing the script now, and he'll draw it for me later. Mm. I'm like, well, that doesn't, I can't even imagine that in a certain way, because to me, it's like I could write a script for another cartoonist, but it would, when it was done, if they were doing the same kind of work I'm doing, it wouldn't be what I was planning. They would put something else into it and it would make it into, that's when it would come to life. It's kind of like if, if, I wrote, uh, if I wrote you the lyrics and said, here, yeah. Make some music for this. Right. That would not be like it would be. Right. You'd made. You'd put it. You'd created it somehow. Right. I mean, the old Tin Pan Alley songwriters. My grandfather's one of them. Used to do it that way. It seems very funny. The guys in Squeeze, for instance, did that. You know, one would write lyrics, one would write words. But it, yeah. it does feel I mean, unnatural. And a, the Gershwins yeah. did it. You know. But it does feel like an awkward way to go. But with Schultz, you really had both a writer and oh, yeah. an artist at the, yeah. in the same 
Yeah, you couldn't time. separate them. You couldn't separate them. You can't imagine like a script for Peanuts. It's like right. panel one. Right. Lucy says, good grief. You know, <laughs> but it's like that, had to, that just had to come out of his hand like handwriting. Right, right, right. Cool. All right, well, that's it for me, gang. Um, we're going to open this up. Uh, Maddie, I think you're going to take it over. So um, thank you, Seth. I'll see thank you, you on you the, very the much. way out. All right, so do we have questions from the audience? Yes. Yeah, there are. I mean, I'm being um, very purist about it. I do think that the work I like best is usually kind of an auteur kind of experience, but certainly Harvey Pekar was a writer. I always loved his work, and when he was working with other artists, a lot of that stuff I loved. But again, I think I like the stuff best that he did with Robert Crumb because Robert Crumb was just such a terrific cartoonist. So when he would do something with like some of the other cartoonists he worked with, sometimes I would be like, it's not quite as good as what the work he does with Crumb because Crumb's bringing something to that work that was really unique as well. Um, let me think about this further. Is there anybody else? How did Neil Gaiman work with you? I know nothing about Neil Gaiman. Really? Yeah. No, I've never, sorry, Neil, but I've never read anything. <laughs> He's a nice guy, though. <laughs> no, I don't really know. You know, the funny thing is, is I'm not, like, I'd have to think about it, and I'm sure I'd be like, there'd be a couple of people I would immediately be like, oh, I forgot about them, they're great. Because there are some great combinations where people have created these things together. I mean, just like we were talking about music. I mean, obviously, not all songs have to be done by one person. Um, but I do think that in comics, I tend to find the work I like best is the vision of an individual artist. Yeah. Well, I want the work to be quiet. It's an important point. Um, like when I started out, I remember one of the things I first I thought about, or that struck me about comics, was that um, you didn't have much silence. Um, in the early, like commercial cartoonists didn't have the opportunity. For one thing, you you know, an editor would say, "Here's a story. You've got eight pages." Eight pages doesn't mean you've got, you don't get to have a page of them walking from the bathroom to the bedroom. They've, you gotta get rolling. So it was like cartooning didn't have a big vocabulary about quietness. Um, but once, you know, my generation came along, we suddenly, a lot of what we were doing was about letting the, the story have the space to tell itself. And I know I very deliberately wanted to um, have a lot more quiet in it. Um, certainly I was looking, Chester Brown was a good friend of mine at that time, and he was doing quite a bit of that in his work, and it was really inspiring. He was doing very naturalistic kind of storytelling of people walking down the street, stepping on a leaf, whatever, you know, really small stuff. Um, and I, that imprinted itself in my mind. Um, a lot of my comics do have actually like quite a bit of like um, verbiage in them, a lot of narration. But I do try to, like once I feel, uh, there's a natural feeling like where you're like, okay, this is too much talking. Now we've got to like, let's quiet it down. Let's put in a sequence here where it just flows. And I do think that that's like, um, for me at least, progressively, I'm more interested in, in like the quietness in stories. I'm not a big fan of conflict. And as I get older, 
I find anything I read or see, I, I think to myself, I, would, I like this, but I would like it better if there was less conflict in it. Oh. Yeah, I've actually, um, Palookaville will carry on. I'm going to, the next one might be like, might not be for a year, because I've gotten slowed down by a few things this year. But I'm starting a new graphic novel. It's not gonna take 20 years. Um, it's, got, it's going to be just three segments, so three issues of Palookaville, so let's say six years. Um, and I'll tell you, it's called The Royal. But that's all I'll say about it, because when you start talking about a future project, inevitably you kill it by explaining it. But I will be publishing, in fact, I'm interested in like, I'm doing a lot of stuff now that's like not necessarily cartooning related and uh, making objects and doing more gallery related work. And I think more of that stuff will find its way into the middle sections of, of Palookaville between the comics. And um, I've been doing a lot of sketchbook work and probably next year at DNQ, we're going to do a big, like you know, um, retrospective book of like the art of Seth kind of thing. And I will, it might be several books that are put together in a slipcase. There will certainly be at least one book that will be all sketchbook material for sure. And Chester, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, those guys were super important to me. Um, it was interesting, I say this all the time, like that um, back in those days, there was probably only 50 cartoonists in North America that were trying to do like uh, whatever you want to call it, alternative comics, literary comics, art comics, whatever. That eventually winnowed itself down to probably about 25, like in all of North America. And whoever you lived in the city with, if you lived with another cartoonist in your city, that was your friend. You didn't have a choice. It was like, uh, that was the only other cartoonist in your area, so it was like I had to be friends with Chester and Joe. Um, and there was, you know, we used to always joke about, we would always, Chester and I would always say, why didn't we get Joe Sacco? You know, we, it's like Joe Matt was very irritating. But, um, but the truth is that that early experience of being with those two guys was like enormously influential because it was kind of like a little school of cartooning. We'd get together, and Chester was a little bit more advanced than Joe and I. He he had already pretty much figured out. He had a he, he was more formed, I would say. But um, and we would sit around and we would like hash out like what's a good comic. Um, and we all grew up with the same kind of material, and we had very similar interests in telling real life stories. So we'd say like, why is why are these Harvey Pekar comics good? What makes them good? Why is Linda Berry good? You know, try and figure out what what's the rules to make a good comic? What makes it bad? That was like a very interesting kind of school. We'd show each other our work. We were very critical, um, very critical. Um, it, in fact, we'd laugh at each other, you know, like this is ridiculous, it's terrible. But, um, but that was really useful. And it was a very, because it was a loving kind of friendship, it was all fine. Eventually though, you know, you get older and um, I don't feel like I wouldn't show my work to anybody anymore. I wouldn't show it to Chester before it's published. Um, I wouldn't want his opinion and because uh, he might be right. And um, I don't, you know, I, you want it to like live and die on your own choices. And I think like, you know, I you know, we've moved apart. So Tr Chester lives in Toronto, I live in Guelph, and Joe moved to LA, now he's currently in San Francisco. Um, so we're not as tight as we used to be. Um, but of course I still value them tremendously. And I think they're both great cartoonists. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. And you can actually publish it to people who are already in the Yeah. I know this is a tough question, but yeah. I always wonder about that. Yeah. I didn't know anything about her. That it's like everything that's in the comic is pretty true. I mean, I went to a motel. I went back to the town I grew up in. I, this was before I even could drive again. I didn't have a car, so I took a train to this little town. And I got there, and I stayed in this, this motel that was a complete terrifying dive. <laughs> and uh, the woman in the next, like, there were people living in the motel. I didn't realize this when I booked a room. And uh, she came over, and she knocked at my door. And I was like, hello. And then I started talking to her, and she was crazy. She, she took me to her room to show me that she was scrubbing the floor with shoes she'd made with SOS pads on the bottom. <laughs> and, um, and she was, she, but she was, it was an interesting experience, so I included it in the story. But, and here's the truth, that's not a piece of her artwork. I just made that up. It's like, but, but I think she did show me artwork in real life, but of course I didn't take it. Weirdly, though, she gave me, when I left, she gave me uh, a roll of film. She said, like when I was leaving, she gave me one of those old cartridges, you know, for like an instrumentic camera. And she said, here, here's a present for you. So when I got back to Toronto, I uh, got it uh, developed. And it was like six photographs. And they were, they were really nothing at all. I can't really remember what the first five were. But the last one was a taxi cab driving away. And somewhere in my mind, I've like transferred it into it that it's my taxi cab driving away. But I'm like, and then at some point I, re I sort of rethought it and I thought, well, it can't be because she gave me the film before I left. But you know how memory works, it's funny. But that was an interesting experience and I do think about her sometime, but I'm sure that we could make up an ending for that story. <laughs> a bit of all that. I mean, like, I don't write a script in the true sense. Like, I don't write down, like, like I said, I don't write directions or say, you know, characters do this or whatever. But, and I tend to, you tend to work scene by scene, I'd say. So I know what, like, the arc of things will be. And I make a lot of notes so I don't forget things. Like, remember that he does this or whatever. But when the time comes, I might type out the dialogue. So I, I, if I have a scene of two people talking, I just quickly type all that stuff out. And then I'll have that there. And then I'll start making little thumbnails of the pages. Where I'll be like, there, there should be a big panel here and then two little ones. And then, and then you do this really small because it's all about the rhythm of it. I might even like put little numbers like next to the dialogue. So panel one has like this little bit of dialogue in it. No drawings at this point. This is just about rhythm and the feeling of what should be in the panels. Then I work on a light table. I won't overdo this. But I work on a light table and so I can draw out the grid of the page and then put paper over top and work on each panel separately, tape it in place so it's hanging in front of you. And then you can see, like two pages usually because they have to balance each other. And then you can see, you'll be like, oh well, this isn't quite right, you should have a bigger head here, like to balance this big shape down here. So then you tear that panel out and redraw it, put it up, and that whole process. But the process of the drawing as I said before, is when it like comes to life somehow. There's something in that where connections get made, not just graphically, but like in how the story tells itself. Uh, the positions of the characters, the way they relate to each other. You might even find something that you didn't think about in the story that comes out. It gets written sort of in that moment. And I think that's where the, even Clyde fans, it took 20 years to do, where I, I knew everything that was going to happen, it was, I always felt like it was only when I sat down to draw it that it actually, now I'm doing the real writing. Yeah, could be. I like Mr. <laughs> 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 I would just say that I don't want to say too long. 
That's nice. That's great. I appreciate that. Okay. Yeah. Well, I do think you know, like I think we all have kind of like a. I mean, I, maybe I'm projecting, but I feel like I can't write anybody when I, I'm writing a character. There's only two things I ever think about. One is what in the past are they thinking about, and two, what do they collect? That's it. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.